Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Politics without the soap opera. With unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for our life, liberty, and property as we power towards the 4th of July, our Liberty Pride Month, Patriot Pride Month, Family Pride Month, where we need to renew and reaffirm the values of that Declaration of Independence. It is Thursday, the 29th of June today. And look, before we get all grim and dark, obviously there is great news. Just a couple minutes ago today, Supreme Court ruled in a pair of rulings, the Harvard and University of North Carolina, admissions based on race, affirmative action is unconstitutional, violation of the 14th Amendment. And, you know, that is something definitely to celebrate, but it underscores a broader trend we're seeing, where the potential for us to not just beat back the newest iteration and the next iteration of deboshed Marxism, cultural and economic Marxism is is right around the corner. We have that in our hands, but we have the ability to move back the Overton window on a lot of issues. Uh, This issue in the lead up to this decision was polled in public polling and super majorities overwhelmingly people want this ended. They want affirmative action ended. So it just shows you the opportunity we have if we only gathered a smart, focused, committed movement, we could actually win on a lot of issues in big swaths of the country. Um, And and look, you know, I want to start with with a poll. There is a Harvard-Harris poll out today, or actually this week, that 66% of voters, including a majority of all parties, say they would not want to live in a state that has increased taxes, restricts legal gun ownership more strictly, allows abortion for the full nine months, and allows minors to get castration, and encourages undocumented immigrants as illegals, and allows felons to vote. That was the choice they were given. Where 64% said they would rather live in a state that cuts taxes, encourages public charter schools, does not allow castration restricts most abortions after six weeks. 59% of voters oppose government regulations that would require half of cars be sold to be EVs, electric vehicles, by 2030. And 64% still think gas-powered vehicles are better than EVs. The point is, broadly speaking, like I keep saying, the public is with us. The public is with us. But we are still underperforming where we could be. And that's the gap between the potential and kinetic that we need to fill in because in the meantime, they are largely winning on policy. They are making us unhealthy. They are making us poor. They're making us dumb and they're making us deboshed. And each one of those, they're still succeeding. It doesn't have to be that way. So I want to start off today first by focusing on the poor part, 
they're making us poor Bidenomics. What's going on with Biden? You know, he was touting Bidenomics yesterday in a speech. Inflation, cost of living, the economy, where things stand, what I want to see from the presidential candidates on that. Then if we have time, we'll get back to some of the Supreme Court rulings as well. First, our sponsor today, um, part of how they want us deboshed and unhealthy is they want to spy on us. Big tech and big data have shown us time after time that they're against us and they're willing to access and record us 24-7. Your phones are always fair game. Even if they're turned off, the microphones and cameras location tracker still work. And that's just the tech people. The FBI could get in, you know, who knows what. That That's why I re- recommend the Refuge Ghost Sleeve. I actually have my phone in it right now on my table because I'm not using it while I'm doing the show. So why needlessly have it on? Visit RefugePrivacy.com today. Use promo code Daniel for 10% off your American Buffalo Leather Made Ghost Sleeve. You put your phone in it, it blocks 5G signals that other Faraday sleeves miss. Um, And also, it blocks signal and sound. So they added a sound blocking panel on each side that keeps conversations absolutely private. And it feels, it's great. It feels nice, so it's comfortable. It's not like a a box sitting in your pocket. It fits in your pocket or your pocketbook. Looks great. Um, easy to take in and out when you need it, uh, but you can't be too careful these days. This is, again, how you could take your own destiny in your own hands, protect your privacy with RefugePrivacy.com. That's RefugePrivacy.com, promo code Daniel, for 10% off. So, look, I mean, in every poll, the bottom line is the cost of living is is going to loom large, whether it's the general election, a primary, that really is the big issue that people need to speak to. We've talked a lot about the culture. We've talked about a lot of, about sovereignty, a lot about our bodies. We'll talk about how government is making us poor. And again, fitting in with the theme that I started with, <clears throat> the potential is great because it used to be the contours of debate were just around Medicare, Social Security, and... We're going to give you stuff. And I'm not saying I agree with that stuff. And it, it does tie in the dependency and the lack of, um, at least for the before retirement programs, the negative incentive against work, which is a big problem in labor and economy. We'll talk about that a little bit. But in general, it used to be it was tough. Democrats were like, we care about the poor. Republicans don't care about the poor. We're going to help you in such and such way. Okay, and that, that was a little bit harder to campaign against. When I started in politics, that's kind of what the contours of debate were. Dating back to FDR and LBJ and Bill Clinton. So that was a little bit harder to message. Right now, if you only had the right message, you could push back against so much of this communism, not just from the last couple of years and what they want to implement in the coming years and have in the pipeline, but really what's been happening a lot with the global warming stuff and energy policies, because right now, the lesson of Bidenomics is we want you to be poor. They're open about it. You will live in 15-minute cities, you'll own nothing, you'll be happy, you'll eat bugs, and that's the way it's going to be. They're open about it. So now is the time to fight that. But again, I am going to warn you, 
that it's going to be very hard to have this debate over bread and butter issues, cost of living, with the distraction of Trump as the general election candidate. It's going to make it a lot easier for them to distract. This is another big reason we need someone who's capable of focusing like a laser beam on issues like this. But Bidenomics at its core is, we will plunder the carcass of America in order to make you poor. Why do they want you to be poor? The same reason they want to destroy your body. They want to make you easily controllable. If you are able to live an American-style standard of living with dignity, then there's no, there's no need for them. That, that, that's the problem. People clamor for control for, for a king when they feel they're in need. That's what COVID was. They convinced people that they were going to die. Well, if you don't want to die, here's what you got to do. And, and what they have done is they have made it impossible to afford medical care, education, unless you want to go to the public schools, and housing, food, fuel, cars, you name it. Everything is so expensive. So there's this lie out there that the Biden admin keeps putting out that inflation is going down. Inflation is going down. And you'll hear it left and right. And they'll show some legitimate markers that show it's going down. But it's all an illusion. Nobody who, you know, especially if if you don't have a big margin of error in your checking account, nobody sees that on the ground. And here's why. Because the reality is inflation grew to insane levels And I want to make it clear, there's a cutoff from Biden taking office, but also a lot of what we're going to talk about with the metrics today is a year earlier, almost a year earlier, is COVID, which started under Trump. It's the COVID stuff, the endless inflation powered by the endless debt misallocation of resources, creating this vicious cycle around the need to service more debt, therefore the need creating more inflation, therefore the need to keep interest rates high, therefore, you know, basically creating even more personal and public debt, and it's a vicious cycle. What happened was inflation was insane. And then you had the Ukrainian war, the embargo on Russia. It spiked food and fuel to such a crazy degree that now they were it was it, it oscillates a little bit off of that record high and lands at a permanent plateau. So basically, what's happening now is we're stuck with a permanent new normal, and they're acculturating the market and individual households to you know be be content with that and that's the problem just like they do with grooming socially and the restrictions and liberties they're doing that with economy too so things will go up you know a hundred percent and then it recedes back to 70 percent higher than it was oh that's a new normal that's what's happening now most other things are at or near record highs the only substantial decrease was gasoline and diesel 
But even that is still a dollar twenty higher than when Biden took office. And even that maintenance of that pretty high baseline, you know, $3.50 for gasoline, was it $3.70 or so for diesel? Even that is only maintained from Biden plundering the strategic petroleum reserves, which in turn itself is unsustainable. They can't cut any more from it. So if anything, even that is going to go up higher than even the current high baseline, not to mention everything else, which is already near record high. So I want to go through some of those numbers just to dispel this myth of um, Bidenomics here. Our, our one other sponsor today is, of course, Barrel Buddy. Look, uh, guns are expensive, and, and, and that's the thing. You can't afford not to take care of your gun. It's, uh, it's expen- expensive machinery, don't just put your gun back in the safe after firing hundreds, thousand rounds and not cleaning it because you're too lazy, it smells bad, you get your hands dirty. The cleanest, most efficient way is to use Barrel Buddy. It's a cartridge that compresses to fill the interior of your gun's barrel and makes sure that you clean the rifling grooves. It comes in all different sizes, so pick the right caliber. Um, and you just pop it through and boom, it just absorbs the particulates collects it, and the residue comes out on the other side. It doesn't leave anything more. It doesn't leave the shedding from the cloths that you typically have that I was using until now. I really enjoy cleaning my gun, and you should as well, because otherwise you won't do it. That's the reality. People get lazy. BarrelBuddy.com. That's BarrelBuddy.com. Never allow your gun to go dirty. So what do we have here? We were told that inflation is going down, but the reality is the entirety was the decrease from gasoline. Core inflation last month was up 5.3% over 12 months. Now, obviously, shelter is up 8%. Food was up 6.7%. And again, that's 6.7% from last year's highs. And then transportation has skyrocketed 10.2%. So all the key things are up. What Biden did was a bait and switch. We have a high baseline that was of price for gas that was threatening to go permanently into the fours and even fives. So the bait and switch was basically we got 3% of our petroleum imported from Russia. Did the stupid embargo without, of course beefing up our own production 3%. So it had to come from somewhere. So literally that amount, if you take that amount that we lost from Russia, that's the exact amount he took from the Strategic Petroleum Reserves. But that's a lot. And it took that much just to maintain about 350. We had 638 million barrels of oil in the SPR when he took office. Today it's under three. 50. So he basically almost cut it in half. We we have like less than 20 days of reserve supply. Lowest level since the early 1980s and our country was obviously a lot smaller back then and had, you know, less demand. So we are basically, you know, if we had a crisis, we would not be able to fill in the gap of supply chain problems. Um and and we're entering into hurricane season. What do you think that means? 
What do you think we're telegraphing to China that if they could create any disruption, we're basically screwed? So that's, that is Bidenomics in, in, in a nutshell. Plunder our security, our reserves to maintain a political posture of a long-term high baseline just on one commodity that's already high. And they call that a victory. Disgusting. The SPR, by the way, is supposed to have a 90-day supply in it, and it's down to about 20. So now they're basically in a catch-22 with a perpetual inflation fueled by debt versus the need to refill the reserves. So it's going to go in one direction or another. Now, they did promise they put in an order. At, so I put in an order to refill 12 million barrels. That's like less than 4% of what he rated. But until now, I mean, they're still cutting. We've had 13 consecutive weeks of Biden rating the SBR inventory. So this is the best it will get in terms of ga- gas prices as we're forced to reverse the only dangerous policy that's keeping it stable between 350 and 4. And that's just gas. What they have ensured is that no normal person without an unusually high level of income can live the American dream. This needs to be the core message, that they are purposely boxing you out of the standard of living that your father and grandfather had, much less making progress. The regressiveness of the progressives. What's the biggest thing? Shelter. Housing. Okay? So again, this is this is done on purpose. It's a legacy of the Federal Reserve. It's a legacy of the printing money and the debt. Let's talk about it. What happened was, over years... Over the years, they made the market dependent on arbitrarily low interest rates, created an asset bubble. They used that to service the debt. Okay? They needed to service the debt. So what? how do they print money? They sell a bunch of mortgage-backed securities, further fueling an artificial housing bubble. Okay, that's on the demand side. Then we get to COVID, both the supply and demand side. On the demand side with COVID, they took all that debt and they just exploded it. Several trillion dollars of printing money that created insane inflation. Raised the cost of everything, including housing. Then COVID itself, I mean COVID shutdown itself, caused a shortage in construction. Stopped. Imagine you stop construction for a year of houses. You have a housing shortage. Boom. Now you're screwed. Fewer houses, higher cost. Then the debt in multiple ways adding to the pricing. Whoops. Now we go as the Federal Reserve and swing the steering wheel in the exact opposite direction and increase rates over a period of like 15 months quicker than we've ever done. So now... You have record high, um, record high prices of homes. Now that's not record high interest rates, obviously, relative to the seventies and eighties and early nineties. But we've never had this mix 
of relatively high interest rates, mortgage rates hovering around 7%, with high prices the way they are. And then that in itself further reinforces the housing crisis because you have all these people locked in at fixed mortgages like myself. I'm at three and an eighth. So you're not going to want to, you're going to hang on to your house. More people would otherwise move. They, they would move on, maybe go to a condo or whatever. They're staying put in their homes. They don't want to get a new interest rate that's 7%. Right? And, and even though people engaging in resales will benefit from the price of their home, okay, so they will have a higher, they'll make money off of selling their home, which went up a lot, obviously, if you're a homeowner over the last 10 years. But remember that you have to buy a new one, which is at a record high price with those interest rates. So that's creating another arbitrary shortage. And then obviously you add to that two other factors, and this is what presidential candidates need to deal with. The labor market and the construction materials. The global warming energy and eco-regulations are making construction needlessly expensive. That needs to be reversed. Every reg that makes construction more expensive needs to be reversed. Number two, the labor market. And we talked about this a little bit with Stephen Camerato of the Center for Immigration Studies last week. That, again, I mean, we have never paid people to not work like we do today. It's absolutely insane. So this is how you box. You have an entire generation of non-college educated who um, who don't want to work. College educated do, but uh, they don't want to work. So then you have this labor shortage. And that's an issue in construction as well. Doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. But basically, I don't know. I mean, and, and email me, Daniel Horowitz at startmail.com. If you're in this predicament, you know, I'm thankful I bought my house ooh, about 10 and a half years ago. But, you know, I don't understand what you would do now. So basically, if you look at a modest home, okay, you know, not tiny, but certainly not a mansion, relatively low cost city. You're potentially now paying $2,600 a month in pity payments, right? Principal interest, taxes, and homeowner's insurance. Up from about, my best math is about $1,250 just three years ago. Three years ago. And by the way, that's the thing. You look at any cost of anything, you can mark it on a graph March 2020. So we've, we've talked a lot about it, the genocide of COVID. But the, the legacy on the economy and the cost of living is out of control. Do you understand what that's like to more than double? Meaning, and this is after paying obviously more on a down payment because the houses are much more expensive. Your monthly payments are more than double in three years. When has that ever happened in history? Because remember, the more expensive the house gets, and that's fine. I mean, it's good for houses, you know, to grow your equity, but 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 it, it, it's got to be gradual. This has created a cliff. So remember, the more expensive your house is, the more you're going to pay in property taxes, the more you're going to pay in insurance as well. So you have to add that, too, to the mortgage calculator. 
So if you're a first-time homeowner, I don't understand. Like, you're a guy, you know, you get married, have a kid, let's say you're 28. You know, to earn enough money, you have to have enough capital built up for the, you know, who knows what. Uh, you know, average home, like, I think is 420000 I think that's what I ran these numbers for. So you're going to have to have, well, like 80000 plunked down, and then you're going to be paying this much. But again, see, median home is very misleading. It depends where you are. You could find cheaper places. But in a lot of desirable areas where people want to live, you could easily get more expensive. So, for example, you know, I was looking into, we're based in, in, in Dallas, as you well know, and everyone's like, oh, Daniel, when are you going to get out of the blue state? So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I want to get out. But, again, red states aren't that blue. I want to make it work. And, all right, so maybe I'll move to Dallas. Now, I don't want to live in Dallas for a number of reasons. You don't want to live in a major city, including in a red state, as we said, unfortunately, because red states barely assert control over you know, you know, conservative policies, even in rural areas, much less over the blue cities. All right, so you li- move out to a place like one county over, Collin County, where Plano is. Very desirable area. Everyone wants to live there. There you're talking about a median home I looked up was like 520. And, and, and the areas I was looking at, it was really more like 650, what I was seeing. And again, I'm not talking about a mansion. I'm not talking about a mansion. But I'm talking about to anyone who would aspire, especially in my situation where you're, you're upper 30s, this would be your second home, you got four kids. Okay, we're not talking about, you know, when you average it out. Yeah, you, you average the price of homes, including the cost of row houses in Detroit and Baltimore City. But, you know, if you aspire to live in a normal, safe, suburban neighborhood with a decent-sized home, you're, you're actually really talking about much more than that. And then a place like Collin County, I mean, the property taxes are fortune, insurance is a fortune. You are easily getting into the 3000s in terms of your monthly payments. It's just simply insane. The welfare state's war on the labor force, along with the eco and energy regs, are crushing innovation in the construction market, making homes needlessly expensive. The Federal Reserve tempering you know, low rates and then high rates created this whole problem. Obviously, the inflation of both the debt, but particularly the mortgage-backed securities, creating the asset bubbles. And that's where we are. And by the way, just, just so you know what the construction, according to Redfin, the number of homes for sale in May dropped to the lowest level on record, down almost 40% since covid the number of homes, homes for sale. So I, I believe that's a mixture of over the last few years, construction's generally been down. It's finally ticking back up, um, but we'll see how far that goes. But also, it's because of what I'm telling you, this this interest rate cliff, the, the bifurcation between people, not just from 30 years ago who bought a house, but even 10, 15 years ago, and, and, and certainly even three, five years ago, so people are sitting on their homes. They don't want to sell. What, what does that do? Well, geez, I can't afford a home. I got to rent. But then that puts unnatural pressure on rent, on the rent market, making it you know, impossible for people just kind of with an average income to afford rent without assistance. 
So rent is now hovering around $2,000. And again, you talk about some of these other metro areas that will easily get you $3,000. Or certainly over $2,500. And then certainly if you have a few kids and you're forced to, you already have, and you don't have a home, then, then that's even bigger. You need, you need a bigger apartment. This is a serious issue. It is all arson. It is all created by a vicious cycle of debt regulation, market distortions, the Federal Reserve, monetary policy, fiscal policy. This is the bread and butter that I want to see Trump and DeSantis speak to. So that's a big deal. And by the way, the rent market too is artificially inflated because of HUD. You have a lot of these places I hear from from landowners, uh, landlords, they they give them such an incentive to rent to Section 8 that they turn everything Section 8 because it's just much easier. You get guaranteed rental. That's a big problem. See, if government comes in dicks machina with like $50 billion a year in HUD subsidies, well, yeah, I mean, that's going to really, really inflate the market and create so much pain for people. Then there's the food issue. Okay? Everyone's got to eat. They could say whatever they want. See, again, like anything, it will go up yay high and then come down 5 to 10% off of, you know, the 100% increase. So, yeah, obviously some things aren't what they were at the crisis moment of the Ukraine war with the embargo. But at the end of the day, food is 20% more expensive than when Biden took office. And even higher in some critical category, categories like chicken cutlets and bread um, is more like 25 to 30% for some of those, those items. Rice has gone up a lot. Um, flour in general has been is 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 very expensive. Still going up. Okay, all right. So you got shelter and food. Then there's the big thing is cars. That used to be the the great middle class in America, unlike any other country. Almost everyone having two cars. Here's the deal, according to Kelly Blue Book. And it's hovered around this. Again, it's stabilized in that it's not going up more the last. Uh, six months or so, I think. But it's plateaued at around 48000 and change for the average transaction price of a new vehicle. Now, obviously, it averages out all vehicles. You want to get a compact car, it's still going to be cheaper than that. But 48000 up from 40000 just since Biden took office. We're talking about less than two and a half years. From forty to 48000 And again... This is a legacy of Biden and the policies telegraphing to the the economy that we are done with gas-powered vehicles. So it's created a shortage. They're literally not sending them, you know, so, I mean, the companies are being told we're phasing them out. So they're not making as many. They're not sending as many to the dealerships within the states. So this is where we're at. Expensive EV or expensive gas-powered car. That's what they're trying to do. And again, this is not just a Democrat thing. The Republican states are doing this. You know, I couldn't believe this. I didn't even know this happened. 
I saw Florida. I don't even know how this happened. What sort of jerky Republican did this? That they passed SB 284 to basically would have forced the state to purchase more renewable vehicles. You know, this is for state agencies, universities. It's for public, you know, this government-run stuff. Would have basically made them purchase more EVs and then would have also kind of expanded into um, inspection for building codes to involve the installation of electric vehicle charging stations, solar energy, and energy storage installations or alternations. So I just saw yesterday DeSantis vetoed the bill, which is which is good, but almost no other governor is doing that. In fact, the governors are encouraging this. So I'm glad he vetoed it, but you see you even had Republicans in the legislature there pushing this garbage. But anyway, this it, they need to make the connection that the EV agenda is making cars unaffordable. Aside from EVs being unfeasible, unsafe, and more expensive, they'll make the roads more expensive, the garages more expensive, the charging stations, the, the electric grid, the price of electricity, all this stuff. But it's making gas-powered cars more expensive because of the, per- the, the real and perceived mandates. States, red states need to get together and say, you could come here and build and market and sell whatever car you want. And that obviously needs to be a promise at a presidential level that all regulations on cars, um, aside from basic safety, but in terms of, of fuel efficiency and global warming regs that needs to go to finance a car. So think about it. Just like with houses, the pricing skyrocketed and the interest rates are now at like, what, 7% if you have good credit? So for a five-year, typical five-year, 60-month loan, 750 a month. More than double the average car payment pre-COVID. Do you understand the way... Th- if you look at a 30,000-foot view of how things have changed since COVID in the economy, it is unreal. But again, a lot of this was built in with some pre-existing regulations that were just turbocharged because they hit us both at the supply and demand end at the same time, and then record debt servicing that created across-the-board inflation. And that's why you're always going to have core inflation, because of the debt alone. More than doubling in three years. And then you're like, all right, I can't afford a new car, so I'll get a used one. But a used car is almost $30,000 on average, nearly 40% higher than when Biden took office. So that's that's the basic story there. Can you imagine that? $750 for car payments for an average car. When I got married, I just got married, so it was just my wife and I before I had kids, our first apartment was like $770 in, in rent a month. This is unreal. Unreal. And no, wages have not gone up that much. And that's the thing. So um, the Heritage Foundation, uh, E.J. Antony, who's their economist, he estimates that if you juxtapose wage growth to price growth, the average family is $7,200 poorer than they were 
less than two and a half years ago. And that's before there's a study that just came out. It's being passed around as a Fox News article on if you add up Biden's regulations. Um, the Now, it, it doesn't necessarily mean every family is paying this. It's just the national cost of it you divided per family, ten, it would be $10,000 per family. That, my friends, is Bidenomics. And again, there's no – this is not getting better. You could ease some of the real supply chain shortage things like they did with gasoline, but that was really only because of the SPR, and now that's over with and you know because he, he can't plunder it anymore. You could ease some of the worst issues with the supply chains could, could get better. But the core inflation is driven by the debt, and that is a degenerative, accelerating degenerative problem. In less than a month since Congress suspended the debt limit, do you know? Do you know that? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, no, no one ever followed up. Oh, McCarthy has a debt limit. Do you know that they ate through eight hundred billion as of yes, as of two days ago, as of two days ago, they serviced another eight hundred billion in debt in less than four weeks. That's in, that, that has never been done. Just to give you a sense, and I know I'm not being exactly accurate here because I'm not adjusting for inflation, but you get the point. It took from our founding until the late 70s to accrue $800 billion in debt that we accrued in less than four weeks. We've accumulated $8.7 trillion in new debt since COVID and $4.5 trillion in Biden's two two and a half years, so now we're up to thirty two point two trillion, a hundred and twenty one percent of GDP. Because I think our dollar GDP is like, I want to say around twenty six trillion. So our debt is about thirty two point two trillion, and that that's the story. But it's worse than that. We've never accrued an additional $800 billion this quickly, except this $800 billion is with interest rates four times higher. So the cost of servicing that debt is going to be even more, create even more misallocation of resources in the economy, induce more inflation because they're, they're going to have to print more money to deal with it, and it's just a vicious, vicious degenerative cycle. That is where we are economically. That is how it affects the average family. And this is before we talk about healthcare, which is the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and education to a lesser degree, but, but number two. But just those core issues of food, fuel, housing, cars, and how that all leads back to the debt to market distortions, to regulations, to global warming. That is the bread and butter message we need to hear from candidates on the economy. It's that simple. All right, so that is the winning economic message. Again, making it real, keeping it real. And look, this endless trap between crushing debt, high interest rates, reinforcing each other, and reinforcing inflation and more higher interest rates, that will keep us trapped between a bad economy and unaffordable living. And that's even before, again, you get to the supply side issues with the regulations, the global warming stuff. 
this is it. Okay, want to move on in the remaining minutes of the show, touch on some of the Supreme Court. So there's good and bad, and, and, and obviously this is before Friday's blockbuster rulings. We're going to have some big ones. I hope we're not disappointed. Um, but we, we'll, we'll do one good, one bad one today, and we'll see what happens tomorrow. So we'll start with the good. Uh, affirmative action ruling. Okay, this is University of North Carolina, Harvard, using racist admissions, basically, that if you're black, you have a leg up or 50 legs up, and obviously discriminating against Asians and whites. So, look, you know, you're not going to get a more categorical ruling out of a guy like John Roberts. It was very good, violates the 14th Amendment, um, very categorical. Obviously, as always, you know, Thomas writes a beautiful concurrence that you can tell he was waiting he, he was waiting 30 years to write this. It's worth your time. It's just beautifully written um, about the Declaration of Independence and a truly quality, very appropriate for July 4th for your reading material. Uh, it's a 58-page concurrence, very, very long, obviously, but it's uh, you know m- mostly pretty easy to gi- digest. Um, but, you know, so he's obviously a little bit more categorical. In other words, they don't explicitly say they're overruling Grutters, which was the affirmative action case of 2003, but it basically does. But, you know, the the problem is when you don't have the categorical language of Thomas, and by the way, um, Gorsuch also had a concurrence where Thomas joined with it, that not only does it violate the 14th Amendment, but also Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Um, discrimination, you know, based on edu- in edu- education, that should really cover employment as well, which is my my main point. So really after this, all affirmative action, all minority-based preferences in hiring, so, uh, see, employment is really the big one, but in certainly and certainly when you get to government programs, should be gone. But this is just what I want to warn you about. Our rulings are never self-executing. And by the way, to be fair, I agree that is the role of the court. The problem is it's not the other direction. So, for example, when they say marriage is no longer a marriage, Obergefell. So, boom, all 50 states, all circumstances falls. But as we noted with the left, what the left does is they don't surrender. They're like, all right, you ruled in one case, one circumstance. And they're going to continue the policies in 80-90% of situations and make you come back. They're doing this already with the Second Amendment. Um, Okay, well, could I regulate this? I'll try this. Kind of a game of catch me if you can in the courts. Okay, so so I'm just going to tell you, you know, as, as much as it's a great ruling, again, it doesn't replace political activity uh, because it's not going to be self-executing on its own. It should be. But it's not even going to, you know, kick it all out of university admissions in all cases, much less really the bigger enchilada, which is all circumstances. We have more racism in this country than ever before. And I don't just mean the cultural media, you know, whites are terrible, war on whites. But I mean literally in things of a matter of law and policy that should be precluded by either the 14th Amendment or, or Civil Rights Act or both, which is you know, all the all the hiring practices in, in the private sector, but, but but certainly the government sector, but it still goes on. 
I mean, you could count throughout the federal government and state governments all these programs that they have, certainly within state-based hiring, but even their programs in general, not just for government employees, but, I mean, heck, half of the small business association, cabinet-level department in the federal government is built on minority businesses, minority this, minority programs. We give preference or sometimes exclusivity to certain things. That should be precluded by the Harvard ruling. Now, we don't need the court ruling. It should be precluded anyway. But whether we like it or not, you know, we determine the Constitution based on Supreme Court rulings. So I think we should just use that as political momentum that I think Republicans in the House need to pick a fight and say, wait a minute, affirmative action is unconstitutional. So we are going to, in all the appropriation bills, defund any program that gives preference to anyone based on race or identity in any way. Done. Done. End it. That's what we need to do. The messaging from today's ruling needs to be awesome opinion. Read Clarence Thomas's concurrence, Gorsuch's concurrence as well. But university admissions is just the first step. We are not, I mean, you have all these DEI programs everywhere. They don't necessarily call it affirmative action. It's kind of an old term. They've moved on to other terms that describe basically the same thing. So we need to be careful that, again, we're not celebrating something that's not in the end zone yet and don't take the necessary actions. Um, and forget about the federal government. I, we have not ended all race-based um, acknowledgements, even in red state governments, not by a long shot. So, I mean, anything within the Department of Health, Department of Education, state, federal, that needs to be done away with, period. So that's the good ruling. Okay, we had a couple days ago this bad ruling. We noted that Kavanaugh and Roberts just went back on their ruling in Rucho v. Common Cause. It is the North Carolina redistricting case. Everything comes out of North Carolina. Where, again, in, in 2019, basically what was happening for years is that as we well know, Democrats, when they get control of the legislature, are going to draw the maps most favorable to them, and Republicans are going to draw it most favorable to, to them. That's been done since the beginning of our founding. It's a flaw, but, but there is no better way of doing it. The only thing worse than a legislative gerrymander is a judicial gerrymander because it's arbitrary. There's no committee hearings. There's no weighing. There's no committee vote, floor vote. Um, it's just helter-skelter, we're, we're going to do this. But they don't set a standard. They said, this is not good, so redraw it. Well, what is the standard? Well, we make it up. You can't really make an objective standard. That's number one. Number two is, while both sides do kind of have, you know, here and there, depending on the state, obnoxious gerrymanders, generally speaking, the Democrats do it more. Okay? Democrats do it more because they have to do it more. Because Democrats already demographically and geographically gerrymandered themselves. So generally speaking, Democrats are less efficiently stretched out over a map. We've said this before. Let's say, 
let's take a state that's naturally 50-50. You have an, a given election, a statewide vote would be 50-50. Even without any gerrymandering, Republicans will automatically, let me just make up a number, have 60-40 in terms of the districts, be them federal House districts and certainly state legislative districts, because the Democrats are confined to the urban areas. They're not spread out in terms of drawing maps. So, you know, you have one city, let's say, you know, a city that's 600,000, 700,000 people, urban area, it will vote 80, 20, 85, 15 Democrat because it's all black. Well, they, you know, that that's your problem. Yeah, you know, obviously, you know, if you want to efficiently do it, you want 58, 42 in every district. Uh, you don't want 85, 15 because you don't need that and you would rather use that to win another district or two, but that's life. That's their problem. So if anything, they actually have to gerrymander and indeed do gerrymander more egregiously when they can. But generally speaking, the last 15 or so years, the Democrats have been more successful in knocking down Republican gerrymanders in courts. Well, not always, and a couple of theirs were knocked down, but generally they keep more of theirs even though they're more egregious. So it's unfair. It's completely unfair. The, 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 the fairer thing is to have the legislature decide it. So we thought we would be done with it in Rucho v. Common Cause. They're like, look, it's political. It's not, it shouldn't be gestationable in the court. Roberts wrote a good opinion, and we thought we were done with it. So then last week, or a couple weeks ago, we had this terrible ruling in Alabama where, they, where Kavanaugh and Roberts carved out a racial exception. Well, a political gerrymander is okay, but if it's racial and it, you know, basically allowing the Democrats to maximize the black vote to maximize the map. And it's egregious, and it, it's not just Alabama, but now Louisiana, and it's, it, it could potentially give the Democrats, I don't know, another seven, eight seats in the South. And that, you know, in a closely divided country makes all the difference. Then, now we have Moore v. Harper, which was decided on Monday or uh, Tuesday, another egregious opinion that allows the state courts to get involved. Now, to be fair, the state courts have been involved, but North Carolina Republicans were arguing it's unconstitutional and should be left to the state, the, the, the legislature. Um, now, now look, to be fair, to be fair, state courts are elected. And indeed, since the South, uh, the North Carolina state, state Supreme Court struck down their maps, um, Republicans actually flipped the court. So rather than being 4-3 Dem, it's 5-2 Republican. And they actually did reverse that ruling. But in general, we need to move beyond and, 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 you know, so they're elected, so it's not like the federal court's doing it. But still, I mean, they're not elected as often and as transparently as legislators are. They're the body of government close to the people, and that is what the Constitution mandates. That is what the Constitution mandates. So you had this opinion, Moore v. Harper. Now, what happened was, as I said, on the way to the decision, Republicans wound up winning the state Supreme Court, and they wound up reversing it. So really, it should have mooted out the decision, and and um, Thomas Gorsuch and Barrett 
no, I'm sorry, Thomas Gorsuch and Alito would have ruled that it's moot and you shouldn't resolve the merits of the question of whether state Supreme Courts could get involved in legislative decisions with elections. It's called the independent state legislature theory. Okay, that doctrine. So Thomas and, and, and Gorsuch and Alito weren't asking to affirmatively decide it the other way to say, they're just saying, leave it open. Now, they made it clear how they, they believe that state legislatures should have control, but that this, this wasn't the right case to decide it because it was moot and he had no right to decide it. Roberts, along with, obviously, the three Dem appointees and Kavanaugh and Barrett, once again, not only ruled that it, it was ripe, and okay, I'm not going to get involved in ripeness. That's kind of like a reasonable people could disagree. But so we can resolve the merits, and they resolve the merits in a bad way. And they basically admitted, yeah, you know, it says legislature in the Constitution, which means the legislature and not any other unit of state or federal government, governor, state courts. But, you know, they could get involved. And we understand there's a concern about what the standard is, but we're not going to create a standard yet. So what that does now is it opens the floodgates for every state Supreme Court and lower courts first to screw with every Republican map. Now, you might say, well, in a red state, the same way you elect a legislature, you should elect a good court. I agree, but the bottom line is there's more instances where there's bad courts in red states to overturn our maps than there are rep- like like more even-keeled courts in blue states to overturn their gerrymanders. I'm just saying this is just another example of how Barrett and Kavanaugh are going to give Democrats a permanent majority in the House. Bad ruling. And I'm not just saying politically, well, you know, it's not Barrett's problem that there's this asymmetry in courts. We do need to do a better job in focusing on state, state Supreme Court um, or state court elections in general in red states. But what I am saying is that it was a bad decision. You know, there is plenary authority under the election clause. Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, that the legislature, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. And the legislature means the legislature. It's very clear from many examples of, of originalist thought based on the times they lived in and the debates in uh, the Constitutional Convention, the state debates, case law since then, it obviously, it means the legislature. Now, obviously, when it comes to state legislative maps and state issues, so certainly the state constitution could vest the state courts with judicial review. But in terms of federal elections, I know it sounds kind of counterintuitive. Wait, it's a federal election. You're saying the state courts have less power. But but no, it if if the Constitution vests the legislature with a certain power, you cannot get rid of it without amending the federal Constitution. So even if the people vote on a popular ballot, we've had this before, like this whole business of, oh, these independent commissions. There was a horrible ruling from Roberts in the Arizona case that these ballot initiatives, no, I don't care if the people vote 99 to 1, on a ballot initiative that we're going to give 
redistricting to an independent commission, it's unconstitutional. It's vested in the legislature. And that's really where it should be, right? Popular sovereignty, you know, just the people voting is never good, you know, is not the best thing. Courts, whether it's state or federal, is too much like an oligarchy. State legislatures are the closest to the people. That's where it should be. So, again, you know, I, I know you're going to say, well, Daniel, we had the good ruling from them. I, I agree, but these are all no-brainers of any conservative justice should rule properly in all of these cases. The difference between a Clarence Thomas and, and these others is a problem. Now, Gorsuch gives us a problem on some crime cases, some immigration cases, and Bostock with trannyism hopefully, generally he's been good on religious liberty, even though Bostock harms it, we'll see tomorrow in some of these religious liberty cases of you know refusal to service uh, homosexual weddings. It's a Colorado case coming up. But Barrett and Kavanaugh, man, have they been a disappointment. Uh, they had no track record on our cases, and they were not on that original list. So I'm sick of Trump getting all the credit. Trump had a freebie to floor the gas pedal with a Republican Senate, no filibuster, to get three Clarence Thomases. And, you know, you could say everyone made, you know, you can't know perfect. So, okay, Gorsuch, you know, I, I, could, I could give credit for that. But those two are a big problem. But we'll find out more tomorrow. Anyway, covered a lot of material today. Courts and economy. We'll move on tomorrow to other issues. Until then, God bless you all. And thank you for listening. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder.